Hello, 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 and welcome to Mr. Movie Club episode four. I am so excited about this episode, honestly, and uh, I'll tell you why. My guest today is uh, the one and only Mr. David Felton. He is a writer. He used to write for Rolling Stone. Um, He's written tons of articles over the years. He was also a TV writer, and he wrote for um, Beavis and Butthead in the 90s, so uh, he's... We have a really interesting talk. The the one of the big articles he wrote back in I guess the late sixties or early seventies was a whole expose about the Manson family. He actually met Charles Manson. He met some of the people, uh, some of his followers. He went to the Spawn Ranch. So for all of you Tarantino fans, I think you'll find this really interesting. Now here's the thing: when we first uh, sat down to talk, it was before. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it was before that came out. So then we kind of mentioned it because we're talking about another film uh, called Charlie Says, which is a smaller film, which is a really interesting companion piece because that is a more serious take on uh, the Charles Manson murders. Um, And we talk about about that pretty extensively because David was actually a consultant on that movie, Charlie Says. The small film about the Manson murders. What David and I did then was we stopped, and there's a second part of our interview. So when you hear us say goodbye, keep listening, because then there's a second part where we uh, spoke a little bit more after seeing Tarantino's new film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, We do have spoilers, especially on the Tarantino stuff, so I suggest you go see that if you haven't already. But um, anyway, it's going to be a a great talk, so um, that's coming up in a minute. Um, a quick uh, WIBW, which is what I'm calling the what I've been watching uh, section. Um, there's another film about cults that I saw with my uh, work friends with our monthly movie club, and it's called Midsommar. It's a film that came out, directed by Ari Aster, and I, I, I'm not going to give you any spoilers. I'll just give you my immediate reaction. And I'm someone who loved... Um, Darren Aronofsky's mother, which a lot of people were sort of put off by. This film is in that same mode in that it has some images that are really hard to unsee. But it's one of the most interesting takes on uh, cults. And, you know, so it kind of it dovetails into the stuff I talked to David about. Um, but it has some really extreme imagery. So I will just give you that warning. Um, and without further ado, I'm going to, uh, now let you listen to my conversation with, uh, David Felton and, um, enjoy. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Mr. Movie Club. Today in the studio, I have with me a very dear friend. He is a writer. A musician, a keyboard, um, I wrote down here keyboard consultant. I don't know why I did that. I meant to write movie consultant, oh. which we'll get to. Uh, keyboardist, friend, and he is, he is family, as they say. Yeah. He is my baby's grandfather, and um, he's uh, known 
as David Felton. Hi, David. Hi. Uh, what's your name again? Oh. <laughs> On this, it's just Barney Barnbarn. Oh, Barney Barnbarn. Yeah. I, I figure if my name is as simple as my email, then people will remember it. It's just all part of the marketing scheme that I worked out with my my huge staff, who you met, um, hmm. my friend. Well, thank you for coming on my my uh, my show here. Um, I wanted to have you on because obviously I know you, and and um, you uh, you started as a writer. You still are a writer. Um, you've written for TV. You've written for shows like Square Pegs, right? Yeah, right. And uh, you were the head writer of Beavis and Butthead. I wasn't really the head writer, but oh, sorry. I, hel- I did help develop the show, and then I was a writer on it. Oh, okay, so you, yeah, but you were you were one of the main writers for like most of the first first launch of it, right? Yeah, he helped launch it, yeah. actually, uh, because I worked for the department, in the department at MTV that that was in charge of these this animated right. show, these animated shows. And uh, and then Mike Judge came by with a couple of clips, and we made it into a show. That's, that's awesome. I didn't realize that it was actually developed at, at MTV proper, where you, you used to work. See, one of the things about Movie Club, even though I call it Mr. Movie Club, I like these days, and I keep saying this on all these podcasts. It's like, you know, there's movies, there's Netflix, there's YouTube, there's you know. So my whole thing is that any kind of motion work is filmmaking work, in my opinion. So in that regard, and the other thing is part of the show is I want to interview people who aren't just directors and actors. I want to interview people who have done other things. On and in a but as far as feature films go, you just did Charlie Says, yes, which was uh, directed by Mary Heron. And written by Guinevere Turner. And are you just listed as a special thanks? Are you listed as sort of a consultant on it? How, well, uh, no, just as a thank you. But uh, Guinevere Turner um, came, um, looked me up and we had lunch when she was getting ready to, or when she was starting to write the film. Right. I didn't know who she was, but she... Uh, well, let's just say before we start the story is that Charlie Says is a biopic about, it's about the Manson murders which you have a history with because you wrote for it for Rolling Stone yeah. and you met some of them, right? Back I met, in the day? I met, yes, I went, met oh. Charlie in jail. And, uh, well, I'll let you tell that story, but just the other, the, the unique thing about the movie is it's from the viewpoint of three of his followers and kind of told in flashback, and, um, which was an interesting take. So you got involved in the project by working with the writer. I, I didn't really get involved in the project. She just wanted to run some stuff by me because she knew that I'd written that piece for Rolling Stone, which was a major, my first major piece for Rolling Stone magazine back in 1970. That was before the Brian Wilson thing? Right. Yeah. Um, in fact, I worked with David Dalton, and he was involved in it because he, he knew Dennis Wilson. So he of had the that, Beach Boys. Of the Beach Boys. And, so, and Dennis knew Charlie. And so because of that and different contacts, we were able to get into the jail to talk to Charlie before the trial. Wow. And um, I will say one thing about this film, which I like very much, by the way. It's really not about Charlie so much as about uh, these three girls, right. who, uh, the three women who uh, were imprisoned, for, and one is still in prison. And, um, and, they're, and then they do flashbacks, but I did think that the portrayal of Charlie, which some reviewers thought was kind of weak, I thought was very accurate. It's exactly how I remembered him. I didn't write down the name of the actor, but it's the guy... He's an English actor. I don't know his and name. And he, 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 I think his, his most high-profile thing was he played Prince Philip, I think, on The Crown oh, on yeah. Netflix. So people who are listening, you can look that up. And I thought he was really good, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I told you, I went to see the film with some friends who... who 
kind of a younger generation. What's interesting is after the film, they kept saying, oh, we wanted to know more about why Charlie did that. And I said the same thing you did, which is like, well, the film wasn't really about Charlie. It was about those three girls uh, who were really under Charlie's spell. Um, you met both Charles Manson and you met some of the... Did you meet the girls that were being portrayed in the film? Or did no, because they, they were... Oh, I don't think so. They were already in jail. I mean, right. they were waiting trial. So I didn't meet them, but I met Squeaky Fromm and I met... Uh, a few of the others who uh, never went to prison, but or they didn't for that crime, but um, but lived at the ranch. We went out to the ranch. We had dinner at the ranch. We um, um, this is all after the crimes and after the yes, wow, yeah. In they fact, kept they kept the ranch after. See, that's interesting to me. I didn't know that part of the history. Well, um, I guess they were living there. So. They were living there, and yeah. they um, the Spawn Ranch, and that was, that's actually the last chapter of what we wrote, and it's a long piece, and it won a National Magazine Award, and it was really covering all aspects of the, not only Manson, but how he was treated by the straight press, the underground press, and all that sort of thing, uh, and it was a cult, and uh, they really, and they lived there, and they believed in Charlie. One of the things in the, in the magazine that I regretted when it came out. It was just a little thing, but I wrote all the, you know, the titles and headlines. And the l- title of the last chapter, which is about a visit to the ranch and the girls and the family, not just the girls, but um, was a, it's a Spawn ranch, and there is old man Spawn who is blind. So, so that part is true. I, I was wondering if that whole thing in the movie about oh, that yeah, guy. Oh, yeah. No, it's all pretty yeah. accurate. And um, the, uh, uh, you know, and so the, the title for that chapter was, in in uh, in uh, in the land of the mindless, the blind man is king, <laughs> which uh, apparently somebody at Rolling Stone didn't get, so they just took out the blind man is king. They just called it in the land of the mindless. I thought it was very clever, because he was blind, and they sort of, in the movie, which I didn't know at the time I went to the ranch, is he let them stay there because the girls he was like, getting get, sexual. Favors. He was getting blowjobs yeah. from the girls. So. Um, and you know they were very friendly, just as and that's one thing I think Winnevere wanted to talk to me about is what, what my impression of the girls were and how because it's a bit and what's good about the movie is that people can't understand how these girls could be so sweet, yeah, right, and uh, so charming and giving, and uh, slice your face open at the same time, right. and that's just the way they were. And so, so you found the portrayal of that that dichotomy pretty accurate. I found and answered a lot of questions because, first of all, it shows that Charlie actually made the girls feel better about themselves. I, yeah. I thought that was the best thing in the film, since we both saw it kind of recently. Do you remember the first scene he starts undressing this girl? And I remember like, with my sort of post-woke 2000, you know, 21st century radar, I'm like, Oh my God! This is exploitative, and, and it was. Yes. He was. He was obviously exploiting them and and getting their confidence. He was a con man he in, was, in some agree. ways, right? But what I thought it was like, and he was like, you know, the girl had a scar, and he said, "You're perfect." And mm-hmm. I thought, oh, he's validating these people who have never been validated. The, my friends from work, who are, are uh, younger than you or me, <laughs> um, were like, "Yeah, but why would someone fall for that after?" And you know, you look at Nazi Germany, you look at Trumpism, and you know, forty percent of this, you like. All you have to do is, in a way, it's almost scary how easy it is to get a bunch of people to do what you want if you're validating, like, people who have been invalidated. And, and back then in the 50s and the 60s, you know, the whole part of counterculture is that a lot of people felt invalidated by their suburban lives or t- tell me if I, I don't was know about in- it, if it's so much about it was perhaps in the case of these girls that they were about uh, felt validated. At least one of them specifically was saying that. In fact, the, cl- the closing words of Lisa uh, uh, 
Krenwinkel, I think, who's still in jail, says that, you know, I, just because I wanted love and now I'm spending it, you know. I, that was the main girl, right? Yeah. In the piece. But I think. Th- and the whole scene about her mom. Not Spoiler alert, but yeah. obviously, if you know the story of the Mansons, you know the story. Well, but. you know, I think that, uh, but I do think that it was uh, what the line in the film I liked is when. Uh, she's when she's being challenged by this professor who comes in to sort of help the girls become right. individuals again, and read books and stuff, which Charlie didn't allow. Um, Get different viewpoints. And uh, and to uh, and they said, but and she said, you really believe that there's going to be this revolution and everything? She said, well, don't you remember back in the late '60s, we all thought something big was yeah. going to happen, and it is it is part of the time, and it does. This movie helps answer this question to me anyway. Is that um, we all believed that something big was going to happen. And the woman says, yes, I believe that. And all my friends did, too. But we didn't go slice up people as a result. you know. And, uh, but they, they uh, felt that, that um, Manson, in some way, had the key to this knowledge. But right. there, there, I had my cousin, who took too much acid and dropped out of Berkeley, come visit me for a while. He was like... At the time? This at this a- time. And he was very handsome and privileged and... And a dropout, and yeah. he I, and he was having trouble with his alcoholic mother. So I said, if you ever need to, need some space, come live with us for a while. He did, and I would take him to parties, and people would just listen to this bullshit out of his mouth yeah, as if yeah. it was some new kind of truth. Yeah. And then eventually, I kicked him out because he, Aaron, my son Aaron was one years old, and he just watched as Aaron spilled the sugar, and he just walked, grooved, he just grooved on it. And I said. This isn't working out, you know. And he would like lecture me about my games I was playing at the L.A. Times. I was a reporter there. He said, "You play these games, taking money for your work." So I said, "Well, all right, you got." And you know, he dropped out. He went to his girlfriend's house. He hung out with her for a while, and then he later became an accountant. So I mean, it's just you know, it's a phase that a lot of us were going through. We were very open to new ideas. We were probably gullible many times. Turn on, tune in, drop out. But I, I personally feel that that. The, the idea of being able to, be, wanting to pick up a stranger on the road, a hitchhiker, and share your weed with him and, right. not, know, and not be afraid was actually a good power, a human power. And, and Manson took advantage of it, and others did too. But I do feel the idea of wanting to be open to new people, to strangers, to not fear everybody, to be more in the area of <clears throat> love and service than fear and selfishness is a good is it something that's good that came out of the 60s, you know, for yeah. and something that we should pursue, even if we maybe should not live at the Spawn Ranch. It sounds like what you're saying, though, is that the movie got that that essence, and, and it sounds like the, those lines at the end about, about how we thought something big was going to happen. The only thing that I can think of in recent times that, that may have felt kind of the same, I remember when, when the economy went to crap right before Obama got elected, you know, I had a company, as you know, and that suddenly had trouble and suddenly, you know, everyone was showing up downtown that was Occupy. And I remember, I mean, in some ways, it, the whole idea of Occupy, I think, was an echo of the 60s. But um, I, I don't know if you well, I think find so. a similarity <clears throat> in, 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 the, in the just the overall, hey, we don't have to play this game. We don't have to go to jobs. And, you know, like, you know I think I, some, a, sometimes I wish there was more of that, uh, especially in our music and everything. Where you, but, but it, you know, every time has its own... Manifestations, and I, uh, I do think that there's a, you know, they took a lot of acid, and uh, one of the things that was interesting with this uh, woman Guinevere Turner, who's an actress and a, um, 
a writer, and she she actually worked with the same director on American Psycho. Oh, I didn't realize she wrote, she worked on that too. Yeah, yeah, and which I haven't seen actually, but she, I saw it years ago. She was uh, she re, she and she just recently wrote a piece in the New Yorker. She grew up with the Lyman family, which I also wrote about for Rolling Stone. You started telling me about that, and I'm not as familiar with that. Well, they're a cult that existed at first in Boston, uh, Roxbury, and, and but it developed out of Jim Queskin Jug Band. He was a har- uh, the harmonica player, uh, Mel Lyman, and then he became God, and he, he got these followers. But his followers weren't from the street; they were the came from the, some of the best families. Uh, you know, uh, Jesse Benton, uh, the daughter of Thomas Hart Benton, the painter, and and uh, you know uh, the stars of Zabriskie Point, uh, wow. Daria Halperin, and oh, yeah, and yeah. And, uh, and, um, and and a speechwriter for Bobby Kennedy, and all these people who really came from. The, so had, it was a higher end uh, cult, really thing. high. Them yeah. a lot of graduates from Harvard and Manson and, only got up to like the drummer from the Beach Boys. <laughs> Yeah, and he didn't guys. join actually. I mean, he just he liked he liked the sex, yeah. but uh, he was not a follower. And when when Manson was arrested, he was totally shocked. Of course, but um, but I you know the and so when it, was the Lyman's? Was that after Manson? Was that seventies? No, it was the same time. In fact, About they the they, they had a picture of Manson on their wall in the children's yeah. room or something. And they they but they didn't do they didn't kill people. But how these people were been and in both cases, one of the things in talking to. Uh, Guinevere and reading her article in the New Yorker, which was just a few weeks ago, about growing up in a cult, in which she's quite sympathetic to what it went, meant to her. But it turned out, you know, they did ha- not the kids, but the adults all took a lot of acid. So and it was so very drug related. It was in the sense I'm wondering. Well, I always wondered if whether there wasn't for some people who took too much, there was a kind of emptiness inside that made yeah. them gullible. But I personally, I've never relished, you know, making. A higher power out of another human being. It's too much. It's it's so it's it's bad for the follower, but it's really bad for the the person who's trying to play God. Even though most of our institutions and society are based on uh, making people God. I mean, not, yeah, I guess I guess that's one of the ways that not to get into it. Well, no, it's it, not a political podcast, but um, it. <laughs> but well, all this stuff brings up you know a lot of stuff that you know stuff that I think about these days. This the whole. The whole idea of, of you know, in-group, out-group identity and, and the fact that we're evolved to be part of small tribes. It doesn't matter if it's a cult or a team or a podcast. Like, we can't help but to group ourselves in companies. You know, there's a, if you think of almost any, organiz, any human organization, it is a group of, of like-minded individuals or people who are pretending to be like-minded mm-hmm. or people who are trying to get other people to be minded like them. And it, it's just human nature. And I think... Cults like Jim Jones Wait, and your, Manson are just yeah. is is that taken to an extreme, and and it's also what happens when you try and do an organization that's going to be really against the status quo, which is obviously a big thing. Well, in the I 60s. think it's more like how much of your individual identity are you willing to sacrifice right. to be part of something, and and uh, that and everybody has to make those choices all the time, and also the fact that we're a nation of horrors, we need money, but um, you know, I think that um, this this is. Uh, I, what I liked about the Manson movie, Charlie says, is it started to answer some of these very hard questions yeah, about how yeah. could somebody be so foolish, right? And right. and made and it didn't make him a hero at all. They end up show, it shows all the murders and everything, but it's not about the murders. It's about you know human need, yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah. and uh, sometimes people are willing to sacrifice a lot for that. And and yeah, and yeah. I mean another part that I thought was when you say it didn't, you know, it doesn't obviously you can't put 
Charles Manson in a good light. But it, um, the sort of smallness of him. Oh, so it is a political pod, 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 <laughs> yes, podcast. Yes. What? I, I defend Charles Manson. Um, <laughs> no, but um, the kind of, you, know, you think about these people, you know, it can, it can be, you know, from Hitler to Jim Jones to Charles Manson, like, the, in, or even our current president, that's as political as I'll get, is that the smallness of him, like when, and remember when, I think it's the main girl, um, kind of points out his hypocrisy when he's like, oh, I'm going to get my friend, when yeah. he's going to do the audition for the record company guy. Like, part of me thought, oh, it couldn't have been this simple. Like, did these people get killed because this guy didn't get a record contract? I, I don't know if I told you this story. When I was working at 89 Green, um, which is another edit place I used to work at back in the day. And my friend Rachel um, had a turntable, like, you know, right when turntables were coming back into vogue. And her edit room was right next to mine. And I hear this music coming out. And I go, what is that? Is that like, you know, Nick Drake? Or is that some kind of 60s, like, singer-songwriter that I never heard of? I was like, oh, that sounds nice. What is that? And she came out and she held up the vinyl. And someone gave her as a joke. Someone pressed up a bootleg of the demos he did. And, and I was like, yeah, I remember this, this horror coming up. I was like, oh, my God. I was, like, grooving to Charles Manson's well, music. Well, you know, it's funny. I, <clears throat> I didn't think... I, yeah, and he did produce an album. which was Did, so, Didn't you, Dennis Wilson <coughs> from the Beach Boys help him with that? Isn't that well, that's, part a, of that's very debatable. I mean, oh, he okay. did... I mean, he did steal one of Manson's songs. Oh. And... Um, uh, I didn't know that story. Well... Uh, I can't remember the time. I hope I. I think. I, it's on one of the late Beach Boys albums. Um, I don't know if it's Friends or what, in that period. Uh, Surfs up, maybe. No, I don't think it's on Surfs up. Yeah. Uh, but it's. Uh, I think it's called Never Learn Not to Love. I should have. Uh, Is that actually credited? To no, Wilson? it's not. It's oh, not credited, and that's one of. The, and that's why. Uh, I don't know what the all the details are. But there is a very similar song on on the album "Lie," which is uh, and it's a, and it's called "Cease to Exist," and that's a song that's in the movie that they're talking about. That, oh wow! That's and, the one he plays in that audition. Um, I don't know if he does it in that oh, audition, okay. but I did. I do think he he does play it at one point was uh-huh. when he's playing songs and and Dennis uh, and you know later he sent a silver bullet to Dennis. He was so mad at him. Oh wow! I didn't and know that. Um, but there was some. Uh, they yeah they probably I don't know if, if they paid him any if the Beach Boys paid him any money or gave him credit or what but in the movie it, it indicates that they told him they were going to put it on their album and he was happy about it so I don't know where the breakdown came hmm. but uh, yeah I think his album you can buy it on you can download it on iTunes but is it really is it yeah yeah it's called Lie it? it's called Jesus. Lie it's a picture of Man- uh, Manson on the Life cover with the word F taken out that, oh uh, I, th- I think that was the cover that my friend that yeah my friend had. but that's not a bootleg that's an actual album but uh, we forgot to plug it in the in the uh, Rolling Stone story which is the reason we got into the jail in the first place we just forgot to mention it oh like like part of the deal was like if you plug my album no, like he was like, literally trying to plug an album from jail we, we but didn't that's have so any, American no, no we didn't have a deal okay uh, just that I think that was their assumption be, and, that, and that we were going to get them in Rolling Stone and that would help the album sales Jeez. and maybe it did I don't know but um, oddly enough I was just recently interviewed by some British TV documentarians who uh, who are going on the theory that if we had if if, if uh, Manson had had his music published the way he wanted, then, then Sharon, Sharon Tate would, Tate be, would alive. be alive. Yeah, yeah. That's just not true. I mean, first of all, the reason it wasn't published is because 
is it wasn't very good i didn't think but this guy was saying oh yeah you can see something in this song you can see a little this and he and i just i thought it was a sort of a, well that, that that gets into a whole nother conversation between yeah, yeah. can you separate the art from the artist but well let's i didn't, not, see, let's I didn't not, see any art there actually but. let's not spend the whole podcast talking about manson although the one other thing i want to say have you seen the trailers for tarantino's new film no but i really want which to. is also has, is at that time yeah and, and what it also has a whole man's i don't yeah. think it's the main it's almost like a subplot it's because like, they're fictional characters but they live next door to sharon it sounds to me like you should see both films yeah yeah and um i want to talk a bit a bit about your writing another movie connection just to connect yeah. it to you know, Mr. Movie Club, is you were a... You started as a writer. You wrote Rolling Stone for a long time. Mm. But um, you were in Almost Famous. You were a oh. character in Almost Famous. Because Cameron Crowe, yeah. Cameron Crowe, because it was basically a story about his formative years, right? Um, yeah. And it was... I mean, did he, he must have changed the character's name because the band in that was totally fictitious, right? Or I, No, he used my name. I, no, well, but, my name doesn't come up. My I'm, uh, you know, the... Character is my right. name, and you're played by Rain Wilson, who yes. went on to fame in yeah, yeah. Uh, the American version of The Office. So, w- was your involvement in that again? Did you were you like any doing consulting work with Cameron? Or no, was no. It Cameron just... called me up one day and he said, "I'm making this movie about Rolling Stone, and I'm and I feature a character named David Felton. I wonder if that's okay." I said, "Sure, that's fine." And then and I didn't go out. I did go out for one day of shooting. Uh, you, but met, you met Raiden Wilson? Yeah, 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 and then I met him later at a cast party or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and um, you know, and I actually met um, Philip Seymour Hoffman at that oh, same wow. party and got him to come Was to he in that? Yeah, yeah, he plays... Um, I kind of see that again. I, I yeah, remember. he plays the New York rock writer, and I now I'm not going to... Oh, that's right, that's right, right. He plays the famous... I know we got to look this yeah. up, but um, it's not Robert Christigo, but it's no. another one of those... Like famous rock writers, yeah. Yeah, and so, uh, and you know, I Cameron, I worked with him. I mean, he was a, he, so it's all true. I mean, I, he came by. I'm not much, in, I'm not, don't have a big part in the movie, but did you know there's a musical coming out of the movie? No, right. Cam, which Cameron wrote, and he says, wait till you see your song. I mean, he said that to me when oh, I that's ran into funny. him. And it's, I think they're premiering it in La Jolla or someplace, or someplace in San Diego in in uh, September. Oh, wow. And then I think he wants to bring it to Broadway and it's going to be almost famous on, be, on Broadway you, with You songs. better at least get a free ticket if you <laughs> get Yeah, them. maybe, yeah. Or you get to pick the cigarette holders that they're... Uh, you know, I will say this. Uh, you know, they all... They didn't, they didn't consult me and I never talked to Rain Wilson before. You didn't pick out the glasses or anything? Nobody, but because it's not a big part. Whereas the uh, actor who played Ben Fogtores, who's a more, bigger right. character... Is uh, did consult with him, but anyway, they. But I will say, Rain Wilson did get my look, and that included the cigarette holder. But I guess because I had a cigarette holder, which and I was just imitating Hunter Thompson, you know. Right, 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 right. And and um, it's an what? imitation of a, of an imitation. Oh, we were all imitating yeah. Hunter. So uh, you know, he um, he got uh, because of that. Then Rain, I think, sort of deduced that I was a sort of. You know, very sort of uh, elite, elitist uh, asshole. You know, I, I mean, I was an asshole, but I wasn't elitist. You know, I, was, I wasn't like a, a some scribe from. I never finished college, and I. <laughs> well, wait, wait, so let's let's keep going on the timeline. So then you you got to MTV, you started doing promos, making a little yeah. bit more money, uh, and you're um, like, so how did the Beavis and Butthead come thing? Well, you, you, you said it was it was the an idea in the department. The department was called short form, so we we're in charge of promos, animation, things like that, and so that's why. I, and so there were a few, there were some really good uh, producers there, 
Well, your wife, my daughter. I, I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> Caitlin Ka- Felton. Caitlin Felton. Who, she will make me cut this out of the well, podcast. But well, uh, she will because because when she first started working there on her own, she got she she rose to be a senior yes. producer, and she, and she did, never told anyone she was. Your daughter, she denied. Right? No, she told them just the opposite. <laughs> I wasn't her father. And, it, we have the same name. Felton's a very yeah. very common. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But we, but it was really great because a lot of times she would direct what I wrote, and it was really sweet. Yeah. But. Um, I remember those. But days. there were uh, Mark Pellington, uh, Peter Lauer, some really great producers yep. came out of there. And, uh, and it's because Judy McGrath let us do whatever we wanted. Yeah. I, 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 was, I was talking to Mark Seliger about this, about how he was photographing at Rolling Stone in the 90s. And then they, all those photographers, like him and Matt Mahern and, um, and some others, like started the, the, whole, the whole thing of MTV from the 80s to the 90s, but specifically in the 90s and then when Nirvana broke and all that, it seemed like a really just creative time in general. It wasn't quite the 60s thing. No one was dropping out, but it just seemed like MTV specifically, and maybe it's because I came, kind of came up through, you know, I didn't work there, but I did a lot of work for them, and that's how I met Caitlin, your daughter. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, but it, but it, it does seem specifically that department, which I knew really well, and I know a lot of the people who came out of there. Um, it, it, it really was a, a, a very freeing, creative um, space for like, what, what, like six or seven years, like 92 to 99 or something? No, it was like early. That. And I, was, I, joined, I started working for them in 83. They started wow. in 81. So it was the 80s and the 90s when Beavis and Butthead started. So I, guess, I guess I'm more familiar with the 90s part. Yeah, of it, yeah. But, uh, but I mean, well, I think one of the things that was so creative about MTV at the beginning was there was no money. So we didn't, we couldn't even do shoots. So we were just making promos out of found footage and found right. pictures and taglines and stuff. I mean, we didn't have taglines. That's the other thing. Since there was nothing else like it, we didn't really have to sell ourselves. If you like this, you know, we just had to say who we were. And 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 Judy was just, she's a writer. She, she became the CEO of MTV Networks. Eventually. I didn't realize Judy, yeah, Judy McGrath. We're yeah. talking about. I didn't realize she started as a writer. Yeah. Too. So she, she, did you know her from the magazine no, days? Or? No, I didn't know her at all. But. Uh, just knew her from that, and then, you know, uh, so we could do some pretty strange things, and then as we got more money, we could do better, you know, more production, but, um, you know, uh, so by the time Mike Judge came around, we had... The, there found, was, the Beavis and Butthead. Yeah, there was a show yeah. called Liquid Television, which I didn't I work remember. on, but uh, but uh, Abby Traculli, who was in charge of animation, and, and Beavis and Butthead became so successful that they started a whole new department, which was MTV Animation, which right. did a lot of shows. Nothing as big as Beavis and Butthead, but that changed everything. And one reason it changed it was because it was the first time they were able to develop a show that had music, had the music in it. Right. So I not only did we write scripts, but we stood around and did be spontaneously wrote Beavis and Butthead responses to the videos. So how did that work? Was it you and Mike and, and I a guess few some other writers literally just watching like, yes. a poison video and, and basically and he, making fun of right. it? Right. No, no. You just and you yell out, "Hey, he's and you know, you said douche," you know, because <laughs> you know, and, uh, and uh, yeah, I think it's from actually, and that one. Judge couldn't figure out where he said douche, but he did because he said, I do shine my pants or something. He <laughs> had to figure it out. So uh, anyway, the, um, yeah, the, uh, if you, uh, I did bring something if you want. If, it's a very short thing, but I. It's a Beavis and Butthead related well, thing? It's a Beavis and Butthead movie related thing. Okay. If you were going to, isn't this a movie show? Or it, you is, just, it is. You claim that's, it is. I was oh, trying to get no, it back that, into TV and that's what I'm trying to get, you know. No, no it, you said, it's movies, but again, I, what I consider movies is any motion 
art. So okay. I, I literally, so I'm, I'm, I'm giving it the widest oh, definition. All right. All right. So let's but, talk about fucking ballet, shall we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. If you film it, then <laughs> it's a movie. <laughs> um, so, um, well, one thing, I, I didn't really work on the movie, but I did get a credit on the movie, which I put on my business card, which is a, a spiritual advisor to Beavis and Butthead. Because <laughs> oh, 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 and on the, on the Beavis and Butthead feature? Do, Beavis and Butthead do America, yeah. Oh, that was credit. nice of him. Well, Paramount didn't want to give it to him, but he, in, Mike insisted on it, because uh-huh. I did really help promote the film and that sort of thing. And one of the things that we did was we sent out interviews that anybody, any radio station could do, where they'd have the answers from Beavis and Butthead, Mike's voice, <laughs> and then they, their own guy would ask the questions. Oh, that's pretty funny. And so uh, uh, Chris Brown, another writer, and I worked on some of these, and I just wanted to read a short one because I think it's one of the best jokes I wrote for Beavis and Butthead. Okay, let's go. It's, uh, and the question is, while shooting your movie, you got to see a lot of America. What part of the country did you like the most? And Beavis says, uh, the boobs. <laughs> and... Uh, the question is, what? And Butthead says, I think Beavis is referring to Las Vegas, which also happens to be a personal favorite of mine, Beavis. Yeah, yeah, Las Vegas rules. They have this huge statue of this naked chick, and you can stare at her boobs all you want. <laughs> and uh, Butthead says, yeah, like two whole days and two whole nights and no sleep. Beavis, yeah, we didn't even get slapped. Butthead, it made me realize that the breast is a beautiful thing. <laughs> and Beavis says, really? I mean, you'd think staring at a breast all day would get pretty boring. But I think that's why they added the second one. You know? To keep things interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so we even have people at local radio stations reading that oh, shit. Um, <laughs> I have a thought that wouldn't go over as well <laughs> today. In a, uh... Well, no, well, no, I think we... Yeah, well, I used to have, we used to go to parties upstate and everything, and there's a woman, I remember a woman coming up to me and saying, you know, you're, you're ruining what my, my two sons don't treat me with respect anymore because of Beavis and Butthead, you know, they hate, you know, the way you treat women and all that stuff. Well, it's, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. Like yeah. the, whole, the whole thing that, you know, that Ronald Reagan liked Archie Bunker because he didn't realize that Archie Bunker was a caricature of that character. It, I mean, it's something that kind of drives me nuts about, you know, some of today's culture, but well, let, let me ask you this: Like, did did any of that bother Mike Judge or you or any of the writers? The fact that it did kind of become a bit of a frat, like like well, like what's like, the, like, like uh, what's the part like South Park has? Like, anytime someone does an edgy humor thing yeah. like that, you can't help but think, well, that's going to attract some people who don't kind of get the 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 ironic stuff that's going. Was, on. The problem was really not that so much. But uh, the fact that it was a cartoon, right? And we originally, but you know, Beavis and Butthead were such a big hit that they had it on at six o'clock at night and and at ten o'clock, and a lot of kids watched it. Right. And uh, I remember one of the issues. I make one of the things, and Judy and I got discussion over this. You know, I used to have them saying, "You homeowner," because I figured they would have a a, a homophobic expression because guys that age do. You know, in the south. And what, what you homeowner? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You homeowner, and uh, we had to making take, fun of the homophobia. In a yeah, way, yeah. You know, well, like, it wasn't making fun of it; it just that they did it. I mean, yeah. you know, like, instead of saying "you homo," you know, "you homeowner." Well, uh, that was one of the lines for a while, and we had to take it out because yeah. we realized that MTV was so influential, especially with young people and teenagers too. That that, that, that would that become would catch an actual on. slur. Whereas, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, so uh, I understood that. Uh, to make it, so we had to face those th- problems. Also, there were people, 
apparently dropping bowling balls on cars. And so we could have to stop doing fire, fire, because people set, started setting fires. Oh, so you do have to be aware of that. But I think the fact that it was a animation and the fact that we had, you know, we influenced a lot of young people, we had to be very careful. So, and, and, and not careful, we just didn't want to do that. Well, it sounds like MTV at least kind of understood, unlike Charles Manson, or maybe Charles Manson did understand it. It's like that when you suddenly have influence over people, it gets back to what we were talking about before. It's like once once you have influence, once you have some kind of influence over people, mm. if if you're not cognizant of of hey, the words you're saying might actually, no matter what you intended, it might have a uh, have a negative. Well, intention. also, I think that um, you know uh, we were. I Mike Judge himself grew up in. Uh, New Mexico, and he knew a lot about. He would know a lot more about uh, Trump and the, and the Trump and and, and vote, which Democrats don't know about, which right. should, who they should learn right. about. And but but like like the word like the name Butthead was based on a on a kid he went to high school with or something, who, who called himself Iron Butt and just had you kick him <laughs> as hard as you wanted to in his butt, you know. So <laughs> that kind of stuff. And another guy. Which Beavis up, and Iron Butt doesn't, <laughs> no, it doesn't, doesn't do quite it. roll but off That's the where tongue. the name came from. And also, mm-hmm. you know, he told me about another guy that just the best thing, the funniest thing he could do with him and his friends is to jerk off in a fish tank. <laughs> <laughs> did, did that make it onto the no, show? No, no, that no, wouldn't okay. be on the show. But I just, I think you're, you know, it did touch, a, I think it touched an honest part of people that have a little, you know, imbecilic child inside of them, yeah. you know, and I don't know, it just, uh, and it certainly broke open a lot of language, which was overdue, you know, we didn't censor because of language, we just censored because it would hurt certain people. Because of, yeah, because, uh, why don't we get into the part, you know, I have two names for this section, sometimes uh, people come in and they have the five films and we talk about all five, sometimes we just do a deep dive on one of the films. Yeah. What I love is, I, can I read the yeah. top five movies that you uh, that you sent to me? Because it's interesting. I, I've seen most of them, but not all of them. But I haven't seen any of them recently except Citizen Kane, which we'll talk about because I know it's cliche. Yeah. But I, I, I agree with you. It's one of the best movies ever made. So there's Citizen Kane, The 500, the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, uh, The Loved One, Pompoko, which is a Ghibli animation, yeah. and then... The Mermaid, tell me if I have this right, that's the one that was made just a few years ago? Yeah, and I gave it to you for Christmas. You gave it to me for Christmas, so I have it on DVD. I have not <laughs> seen it. What I did do is I went and, because I was like, have I seen the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T? So I went and watched all, except for Citizen Kane, I watched all the trailers. Yeah. Um, here, let, let, let's sort of talk about them one at a time, like, so, and we'll end with Citizen Kane. So the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, that's a film I've always known about him, yeah. but I, don't, I, I have a memory of seeing it as a kid, but I don't know if I actually saw the whole thing. But I, the imagery of it is so kind of iconic now, the big piano yeah, yeah. and all that stuff. And I was doing a little research today and watching, uh, watching a trailer of it. Like I learned some things that it's based on a Dr. Seuss story, which I had no, no idea. No, it's written by Dr. Seuss. It was written. He wrote the script. He wrote the script. And there were... And he conceived of the story, and he really, it was his movie. Wow. And he actually did, he was sort of a consultant in the artwork, on the, the, in the sets and everything else. But like lots of cult classics, it was also a huge flop when it came out. Yes. And then, then it, it's kind of... Well, become, I didn't know this much. I've been looking did you it up see myself. it when it came out, or you no, saw no, it? No, no, okay. no. A friend of, um, I never saw it in the theater, I don't think, but a friend of mine, or we might have had a, we might have gone to see it, I guess, but a friend of mine in high school told me about it. The, how hip it was! It was a very, very cool film, and it and it just um, 
So it's not like you like it because it was so bad. It was just it no, was just no, ahead it's not of bad. Time, it's not a, it sounds like well, yeah. you know, um, it was direct. It actually ended up being directed by Stanley Kramer, who was the producer, and um, he was a pretty well known. Yeah, and it had Paul, it had great actors. It had uh, Peter Lynch Hayes and Mary Healy, who were a couple of sort of, of singers and comedians who okay. were often on Ed Sullivan. Um, it had Hans Conried as the villain. Do, villain is Doctor Twilliger, and he is great. Uh, and uh, it um, and and it had Tommy Reddick as the kid who is, is Lassie of Lassie. Oh, I did, that's I, I so thought he looked familiar. They thought it would make a lot of money. The problem was, and this I didn't know until today, is that this was a dark side of Dr. Seuss. Yeah, they had to recut and take out half the songs, half the scenes because they were so sick. Because it, it was about like kidnapping a kid and making them play well, piano. Well, it was it was about. Apparently, when uh, Dr. Seuss was a kid, he had a, a piano teacher that used to rap him on the knuckles with a pencil every time he made a mistake. Wow. And he so hated this that he's trying to get back at him in this movie. So <laughs> Dr. Twilliger has forces people to practice, but also he has a dungeon for uh, where you are put in, and, and it's a dungeon of people that play instruments other than the piano. Is that in the movie? <coughs> that part's in the movie, but... They're getting to the dungeon. You, there's this funny song where you go on this elevator, and there's a, they, he announced it's second floor dungeon, and it's all these evil things. And the third floor one was so bad they had to take that out. It had gas chambers and stuff <laughs> like that. And uh, you know, it just it was, Dr. Seuss just went to a really dark place, and it was and nobody liked it. It wasn't funny. Dark, dark Dr. Seuss. Well, I watching the trailer and hearing you talk about it makes me want to see it. I was trying to come up with it before. It, it kind of <coughs> it kind of remind. It seems like. A Tim Burton film before there were Tim yes. Burton films. It was. So, yes, it was. I'm wondering if he was uh, if he was inspired by that. Well, it also it had some great jokes, and I just a couple of them. They had uh, you know the pair of Siamese twins joined at the beard. They were the guards, and it had um, and, and it had uh, they had a you know, they had the guards sing the song about uh, I, you know there was a show called Halls of Ivy, and they said we have Ivy too, poison Ivy, <laughs> that kind of joke. Yeah. Well, so so the next one on your list is also a strange film, which I did see many, yeah. many years ago, um, called The Loved One, yeah. starring Robert Morris and John Gielgud and Jonathan Winters and like a million other stars at the time. Well, here's, okay, that's, that was the one I most, it's based on Evelyn Waugh's book called The Loved One, and uh, who hated the movie, by the way. But a, uh, uh, and it's based on a parody of Forrest Lawn, because when he visited Hollywood, he saw what a what a, how fake Hollywood was and how fake Forest Lawn was. And I grew up near Forest Lawn. Which What's is, Forest Lawn? Just Forest Lawn was, was this new kind of cemetery uh-huh. where, where tombstones were forbidden. You could only have plaques on the ground. It right. was supposed to be like a park. You'd have picnic lunches there. They had a little baby area. And it had, and it had shows. It had a Jesus show. And it was like, <laughs> and he had the search for the G. He had wanted a smiling Jesus who loved you and me. And he was just this nutcase. But he made this. He changed burial in this country. And that's what and that's what this is. Mo- most new new cemeteries are kind of like that. Yeah, now. and they're supposed to be more like calming places, but they have themes and. I mean, you know, we used to, it sounds like a good idea. Yeah, but we, I used to go there and take friends all the time because they had a gift shop, so you could buy Forest Lawn salt and pepper shakers and tombstones. You know, <laughs> is this in Los Angeles? Yes, and well, they, it was in uh, Glendale, and yeah. they uh, and then there's another one and another one. But it just but they had these rolling hills, and then they had like a a, a Forest Lawn coloring book for kids. You wow. color about all this death. So uh, <clears throat> I remember taking a friend there one time to the gift shop for the fourth or fifth time, and she said. We don't sell a coloring book. I said, well, you used to. He says, 
you won't find anything to laugh at here anymore. <laughs> so anyway, so that, I love Forest Lawn. So when this movie came out, I loved the theme of the movie. But the movie has so many great, sick, funny jokes in it. Yeah. It has Liberace playing a casket salesman. Uh-huh. And it's really good. He's so slimy. And uh, in fact, I quoted one of his lines. That, oh, uh, oh, yeah, he says... Um, David's looking at his phone now. This I am is against Mr. Movie Club Rules, but oh, we'll it make is? an exception because well, he's family. Well, I had family. a quote, but I, now I can't. I'm not good. He says, oh, he, he's Liberace saying. Liberace's in it? Playing himself? Yeah, uh, yeah. He says, was your uncle a sensitive person? Rayon Chafes, you know. He's talking about the inside of a cat. And, you know, like, so <laughs> Rayon Chafes, I get it. <laughs> but, but also one of the great roles in it is Rod Steiger, who used to, you know, yes. playing Mr. Joy Boy, this flaming gay uh, embalmer wow. with a huge fat mother uh, who he feeds. And, I saw that in the trailer. Uh, I mean, there's just so... And then there's one of my favorite scenes is, is this couple. What happens is the star of the movie, Robert Morris, falls... You know, he's supposed to plan this funeral for... Robert his, Morris, who I love, who was yeah. in um, uh, Mad Men. Yeah. Was yeah, 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 as character. an older man. Yeah. But anyway, he... This young punk who he, he's like a he's really like a freeloader. He falls in love with one of the women working there, and uh, so he has to make get a job. So he gets a job, and Jonathan Winter plays two parts. He plays the owner oh, of the big one, and he plays this loser's brother who has a pet cemetery. And so this uh, Morris goes to work at the pet cemetery. And he has to pick Got up it. pets, and one of the uh, couples, he pick, uh, one of the homes he picks a pet up for is this rich home with with uh, um, and Milton Burrow. Right, the, and he is, and his wife is having a meltdown because she, she she loved this dog that died, and she accuses the husband of killing it, which he didn't, and, and she's just yelling at him and say, "You never, you do what you want all the time and all this stuff." So, and he wants this guy to pick up and cremate this dog. So, so uh, he goes over to the bar, and he's so upset, he pours himself a drink, and he puts the ice on the bottom. Of the, he has the glass upside down, and he just just in talking, he just puts his ice cube on the bottom and he has to turn the glass over and he's just so rattled. I just thought it's so... It, it, it so seems good. like a, a ridiculous... It, was it a hit when it came out? No, it was 65 no. or so, right? No, it wasn't a hit. It was. It offended so many people. Uh, well, it, I would almost say both of these movies sound like A, they're kind of bizarre and B, they, they, uh, they seem to deal with dark subject matter, which, I mean, getting back to the whole thing about you know the 60s being a dividing line where it, it seems... I mean, there was great movies about dark subject matter but it, it seemed like there were topics that people didn't talk about until after you know the uh, the 60s revolution well I don't know about that I mean they I that's think, what it seems like to me being I mean, someone you, who's, who's born at the end of that you know I mean you have to remember Terry Southern wrote the love one he was the main oh, writer that's the on same it. Terry Southern who wrote um, Doctor Strange's love right, right? and yeah, it has yeah. the same kind of know, that's, and, and so that's Terry Southern if you don't hold him back he just goes extreme on everything and this, yeah. this every line is a sick joke about death and funerals and and they're right i mean the liberace thing goes on for 15 minutes about little you want butane on the internal frame you want butane or the other kind of gas and all that stuff they just <laughs> well I, I don't want to take this podcast to too dark a place i was interviewing my friend sarah Do you, sarah perosic she used to work at um, mtv and stuff um and uh she has a new movie that ha- deals with death and stuff and I have this theory. You know, without getting into it, you know, we we had a death in our family, right. your your family and my family, and I have this new kind of thing that, and maybe it's just because we went through that, so I'm biased. But it seems to me all great works of art, and it can be a comedy, it can be a drama, it can be a book, it can be, like are are somehow a, a meditation on on 
not just mortality, but just but grief, which is you know what people who survive have to deal with. Yeah. It seems like the loved one is about the more sort of ridiculous aspects of that. Well, I, I just think I liked it, not because it was so dark, but because it's just so over the top. I mean, yeah. it's a fart. It's like a but, complete but, farce. But I guess that's what I mean by like the 60s and, you know, it was all, you know, Sgt. Pepper and the Summer of Love, but it, it does seem like people would, weren't, like from the 50s and before, tell me if you agree, people weren't dealing with those kind of issues very much in, 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 in at least in, in major entertainment art, you know, um, it seems like. Uh, yeah, I think that's what. Yeah, that's where, I think that's what happened when in the late fifties when you had beat next everything, and you know, yeah. and you had and yeah. you had new writers, and you know, it was a. Uh, oftentimes, when you things become too normal and happy, you uh, people rebel by doing very creative things. I think. Right. Well, we're, time is of the essence, and we're coming up on our hour. I certainly don't to, know why nobody's listening to. Well, that's okay. No, well, and I'm going to cut me out, so it's going <laughs> to. Oh, it's oh. going to end up being 20 minutes. <laughs> but, um, but uh, I do want to talk about Pompoko, which I yeah. haven't seen, but that seems like one of the Miyazaka yeah. studio films, which looks great, and The Mermaid. Those two films I haven't seen at all. But maybe we'll talk about those next time. Yeah. I want to fold this into Citizen Kane, which was made way before The Summer of Love, yeah. which, and maybe, that, it's, I'm just thinking of this now, maybe that's why I've always loved that film, because that is a film that um, sort of deals with death and loss and longing, you know, spoiler alert, um, for those who haven't seen it, Rosebud was a... No, 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 don't, don't, don't say Nah, screw those people, they can, they can pause it. But, but for me, what I've always loved about that film is, is it, it's, it's about someone who's chasing... This, this dream of what life should be and even though he's rich and has everything he wants it, it's never what you know it's the like the John Lennon line life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans well, and um, that's I don't know how I'm tying Wells to Lennon well but I'll tell you quickly why I like the film because I don't really want to talk a lot about it except because everybody you know people have seen it but I do feel it has been talked about but I, I love it because it's one guy his first film, and he does everything. Yeah. I mean, and Orson Welles, and, and the script is brilliant. He's the main star. The story is based on a true story, which is really William Randolph Hearst, and right. that's why he got in trouble with it. So it's sort of a parody movie, and it actually parodies journalism on a lot of levels, including a parody newsreel scene to open the movie. And then, uh, and then it's, you know, it's all about this reporter trying to find what the answer to Ro- his last words were rosebuds. He's trying right. to find out what that is. The whole thing, yeah, the whole, and the whole he premise never, is... The, uh, but he never does find out. So right. it's kind of a slap in the face of journalism. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But it's just such a great story and, a, and has a great surprise. And, and you know, and, there's, and there's different, the sets were built with ceilings for the first time. Different kind of camera work. Everything is a, Greg, Greg Tolan, the so, cameraman. Yeah, right, yeah but it just it's using movie as a storytelling thing is it was it broke so many new much uh, new ground, and the cars outside agree. Okay, that's good. Yeah, we love it too. So and then uh, in the end, it has a great surprise ending. That's why yeah. I was. Doing, I mean, it's one of the best surprise endings of. But you won't let me say even on my own. But well, I, you're probably right. I, I think it is one of the greatest surprise endings. And and that surprise ending. Has is sort of explains his personality. Yes, in a po- sort of a new psychological awareness, almost of, in an innocence, loss of innocence way. Without yeah, without. Too much. But I mean, it's sort of you never saw that coming, and so uh, what really drove him was something you never even suspected. Right, so. right. Well, and, and it's interesting what you're saying, but I keep forgetting that the whole journalism premise of the movie and and them never getting to the truth. You're right. It's kind of a, a thing. Oh, the, the it, it's almost like. You know the script is saying, and, and I think Wells wrote the script himself, right? Yeah. Or did he write it with? Oh no, no, Mankiewicz. I think. Okay, 
Um, it, it, but what the, what the film is saying is like, hey, you think you're going to get to the truth of something, but you're not really. No one really knows somebody except you know them. So it get, gets back to the human condition. What I also liked about it, though, is and I saw it kind of recently. I bought a Blu-ray yeah. of it. Don't ask why. But um, and then I was on a plane and it was on and I watched it again. So I've seen it twice in the last year and and it's always like it's as beautiful as I remember. It's edited as well as I remember and all that stuff. One of the things on my last viewing is and you were mentioning this. I forgot how funny it was too. Yeah. Like Wells is actually really funny and I, I am one of those people who thinks he never topped that and he was a victim of his own success because I don't think any of his later films. But I think some of his later films got a little pretentious and didn't. They never had the humor, like you know, his his back and forth with the Joseph Cotton character. Yeah. You know, I, I just it it just it's kind of a perfect film on so many levels. But um, but as we were saying, a lot of people have. Uh, all right, we're gonna end with what I call inside film ball. Now you're a writer; you're not technically a filmmaker, but I just wanna I wanna end with I call it inside film ball because it's like inside baseball, but it's film. Yeah, as my friend Ralph said, it's kind of. A stupid idea, but that's what I've been doing in a few of these things. So what I want to talk to you about, it's where with filmmakers, we'll talk about tech stuff and digital versus film. But one of the things that you and I at, at family dinners and stuff talk about is handheld filmmaking. Oh, yeah. And we won't go, we don't have to dig, dive shaky deep cam, on it. Shaky cam. Shaky cam what, what a lot of like film students call cinema, cinema verite. And uh, I know you you think it, it's it's outrageous that so many movies today have this style, even though they're billion dollar budgets. All all the stuff seems to be filmed as if it's a fake documentary. Yeah. Um, do you want to elaborate on your your hatred? Well, I don't think it's. Shaky I mean, when they say cinema verite, they're thinking of Costa Gravas and who used it in, right. in, in, in trying to imitate a real documentary. But when you you know when you go to uh, what was that, Captain So and So the the. Uh, Tom Hanks is t- taken over by terrorists and on the boat. I don't know. Oh, right, right. And that, that was, I, I forget, I know the movie. But, um, you know, you could say, oh, well, it's a documentary when the terrorists are taking over the boat, but it's also handheld when he's packing his clothes to go on the trip. I mean, right. that is, you know, <laughs> right. so it's, it's, the justification for it is usually pretty flimsy, I think, and it's not verite because our, the way films transfer to our brain needs more research, I think, but there's no time, unless you've taken too much uh, liquor or something where your brain views things that right. wobbly. You, you, our brain stabilizes images. I mean, even what, if you're walking, it yes, stabilizes. Yes, it does. It, yeah. it, it, so it doesn't sit, sit that way. And that's why my wife gets sick when it happens because her stomach can't take Susan. what... And all it's really saying is the cameraman wants to be noticed. Well, the cameraman traditionally is not supposed to be noticed. Yeah, He's supposed yeah. to. So that now cameramen want to be noticed, and that what they want to be noticed for is, hey, I have to take a pee. That's why I'm moving around so much <laughs> like this. So most of the time, and you know, and it's used for very strange things, like in Downton Abbey, it wasn't used at first, but in the last seasons, it was used for the underlings downstairs. But the, the people with the money, it was all locked See, off. So at least that one has a reason. Well, it like, has a I, bad reason. Well, no, but I'm with you here, like. <laughs> I, I don't have as much of a problem with it as you do, and obviously the motion sickness thing, if a whole movie is shaky cam like your wife Susan, you were yeah. alluding well, to. It's just my wife. We don't know how many, no. but there's many, many thousands I'm, of people. I'm sure, and, and, um, and I think that's a valid criticism. Um, my, my, my problem with it, and I have a problem with it too, is when, like you say, like, oh yeah, he's on the boat, that's supposed to be kind of like a documentary, but some of these just shoot the whole film like that. Like Stanley, if you ever watch Dr. Strange Love, which is like square, it's mostly on a tripod, it's all on a set or in a plane, there's hardly any camera movement except then when, when he gets attacked 
by the other soldiers when they realize this guy sent the planes yeah. to, if you've seen Doctor Strange, yeah. the crazy general sends planes to blow up Russia and they're trying to stop him, so the U.S. Army has to attack itself. And that's the only time he went to handheld. And this is like, yeah. you know, when that movie came out in 1963 or whatever, like, the whole movie has, has a real sort of 60s black and white look and then suddenly it goes to this thing and it feels like a newsreel footage. So I think when cinema verite, I'm using air quotes, it, it is, is used in that way, I think it makes sense. Um, but when it's, when it, I agree with you, when it's just gratuitous, yeah, and it's just, <clears throat> the good thing is there are a lot of films coming out. Did you see, um, I was talking to this, uh, talking to my friend Mark Seliger about this. Did you see, oh, now I'm pulling a blank. Um, there's a few movies that have come out. Do you see Roma? Yes. In the theaters, like yeah. beautiful, and the camera only moves when it has to. Um, and uh, what's the other movie? There's another movie by a Polish director who did a movie called Ida. Yeah, I remember that. I remember um, that too. And uh, he had a new movie that came out, and I'm pulling a blank on it, but I'll I'll plug it in later. But uh, it, so it does seem, at least in the art sort of art film world, and hopefully, it's funny because Cinema Verite started as an art world thing, and now. Every, you know, Hunger Games and, and Tom Hanks movies, they all do it. And it, it does seem like the sort of the more sort of uh, high, high-end movies are going back to, hey, you know, what, what my friend Mark says is, hey, let's have a single image and then let the actors perform in that image. And I'm an editor, so and I come from MTV yeah. land like you, and fast cutting kind of became a thing, especially with music videos. But, like, I agree with you with features. Like, you don't have to move the camera. You don't have to cut every five seconds. Let's just show... A beautiful image, and um, let that be it. What? So I don't know if you. Well, agree. I, th- I think that, uh, that's one of the criticisms of people who don't like it. I know there's the fight scenes are terrible. You don't know yep. who's do- what's doing, and that's one reason they do it. So they don't have to figure well, out. Well, that, that's They true. don't have to choreograph a fight scene, which is very difficult. As as an editor, like when you have lots of angles and the camera's moving, yeah. you can any kind of action scene is much easier to edit if you're doing it fast and everything's shaky. So, but that, you don't that, really tell the story as well. But no, but um. But anyway, so on that note, so we're going to end with, um, we're going to say you, movies should all be... You're not using Shaking Cam on this podcast, are you? Oh, uh, Shaky cast. <laughs> shaky mic. <laughs> all right. Um, David, thank you for coming in. I really appreciate it. It was a fun talk. I hope I didn't interrupt you too much. No, you were great. Thank you very I, much. I was be- a little bit better than usual. So. Well, thank, right. thank you. Good night, movie club. Mr. Movie club. Hold on, that's not it. David comes back when we talk about Quentin Tarantino's ninth film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and here it is right now. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Movie Club. You thought it was the ending, but we fooled you. Hello, David. Hi, hi. I'm still here. He's we're we're, we're back, um, and. We're going. I'm going to do something that I've never done. I mean, I've this. actually been here since May. <laughs> Davis has been sitting here waiting, <laughs> waiting for me to return. And now we're going to talk about the new Tarantino film, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and maybe sort of the differences between that and um, Charlie Says. So, David, what was your first reaction to Tarantino's new film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Well, I, I guess it was I, my first reaction was at the very end of the film, and I don't know what we can say that won't uh, spoil it. Spoiler alert, we are going to talk about the film and about the end of the film and the fact that, and I'll just say it now, 
pause and go see the film if you don't want to hear this. Yeah, well, that Tarantino changed yeah. history in it. Well, it's not. She's done before. It's not historical. I mean, it's not accurately historically accurate. And I don't know at what point I realized that uh, I went in thinking, oh well, I'm supposed to analyze this film and how accurate it is in regards to Manson. But really, it's so it's really about. Los Angeles and that area at that time where where I lived. So I really enjoyed the film very much just because I could recognize all that stuff. Like, you know, there was a picture of, of um, you know, of a bus bench and it had an ad for George Putnam, who was this right-wing uh, newscaster on Channel 11 who used to stand at a three-quarter stance in front of American flag and wow. talk about how great Reagan was. <laughs> And he was a joke, you know. But I mean, it, uh, that was that was very charming, and just so many things that I remember from back then. I both my wife and I were just blown away by the scene near the end of the movie where he opens up an ashtray, uh, not an ashtray, an ice tray that with yeah. a crank, one of those crank uh -huh. ice trays. It was just like music hearing that, you know. <laughs> and um, so I, it was a delightful film. It just was so uplifting, and 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 I felt that. For, well, I mean, one way I would describe it, and this, you can do, it's not a total spoiler thing, but it's the only Manson movie with a happy ending. <laughs> it's a, and, that's what, and it is a happy ending. It's, the, the movie is just really, uh, I just thought it was so sweet at times. And yeah, there's some, there is some violence, but not a lot. But it's really about kind of the fairy tale. It is a fairy tale, and it's about the fairy tale that you kind of live when you're... Um, sort of a midway actor and, and, you know, with the ups and downs. And, you know, I just think those two guys, you know, um, DiCaprio and uh, who's the other guy? Pitt. Oh, Pitt were just amazing. And so in that way, it's their buddies. But, you know, the there were so many touching scenes. I thought the scene was, um, there's a scene where, Sharon Tate watches herself on in the theater, uh, watching herself in the movie, and she's just enthralled by the fact that the audience is reacting to her and all this stuff. And I, you know, one of the things that the movie does say indirectly, I think, you know, is that we wouldn't probably know who she was if she hadn't been killed. You know, right, right. So, but she that, that she was about to become a star. I think, she, yeah. yeah, she might have been because she, and actually, I don't didn't know, but somebody told me that that series that they that with the, uh, Dean Martin those, that as a detective or something mm -hmm. like that was a really good series. I never saw any of it, but it, it was, was a movie though, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, these were a series of movies. I think he oh, did more than one. Got it. Um, but anyway, the uh, you know I um, so I just was I just loved being taken back to that time. I didn't. I wasn't part. I didn't. I was working for the LA Times. I wasn't covering the movie. I didn't know much about movies or the inside thing there, but but I just knew what LA was like and what it was like to. And there's allusions to it. I mean, I I, I don't know if I commented earlier, but you know, I've always felt that the '60s sort of got a bad press in many ways, uh, partly because of Manson, but just because people didn't. It was a bunch of young people acting like young people. But I mean, it was a real um, when she, uh, Sharon Tate on her way to. I guess actually where she ends up in the movie theater, but on her way there, she gives a ride to a strange girl, and uh, and they, uh, you don't see what <clears throat> happened on the ride, but at the end you realize it was a great ride. They made friends and all this stuff, and this happened all the time during that time. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that's a really good instinct of humans to come overcome their fear of strangers. And now we're living in a time which is just the opposite of that, where you're afraid to talk to the person in front of you in the 
at the grocery store line because you don't know who they voted for. Right. So right. Um, it's it's so that and you see it really strongly, of course, in the movie Woodstock and in documentaries about Woodstock. And people really did realize that if you got together and be, acted humanely, that you could you know overcome adversity and do all kinds of wonderful things. So that that didn't work out so well in, in time, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, and this was in opposition to the Vietnam War and all that stuff. So you get some of that from the movie. You, get, you certainly get the time. You get the music. You get references to the war. But it's really about these guys trying to make a living and uh, uh, and sort of B pictures or B television. And there's a lot of parodies of that. I mean, there are a lot of uh, and allusions to television at that time and film, which is really well done. I mean, uh, and there's so many scenes that are. Uh, like Tarantino often does, I think, you know, a great, quite long. I mean, I saw it a second time just today. Just yeah, to, you would tell me. And I'm, I'm jealous because I want to see the game. Yeah, but I'll but, tell uh, you. Yeah, how did it hold up on a second It point? held up well, but you realize how long it was. Uh-huh. I mean, it's not a movie you're going to go to. Maybe you'll go to dozens of times. It'll take a long time to do it. It's a lot. It's a big, epic movie. There's only so many times you can watch Brad Pitt feeding his dogs or fixing uh, no, an No, I think I could do that endlessly. That was great. I think a lot of... People can. I think it's no. It's not. It's not that anything. Uh, I didn't notice a lot of new things. I mean, because he takes the time to sort of make things clear. I mean, there was a. Well, you just told me about the the, the advertising bench. Now I'm going to look for that next time. Yeah, I, yeah. I missed that. But. Well, and then there's. Um, but I'm sure there's all kinds of movie references too. Right. You know, uh, I think you know there's that great scene with Bruce with the Bruce Lee character. Yeah, yeah. A fight scene and and Bruce Lee. The character, I think he's called Cato, talks to Brad Pitt and says, you know, well, how come you're smiling? I didn't say anything funny. Well, that probably is an allusion to Goodfellas, but, you know, I... Oh, um, oh that's interesting. But yeah, I, that's who knows? Good. I mean, yeah. I just think that Tarantino in those films so, is so much of a part of his life that he couldn't help but make allusions just in writing anything. Yeah, yeah. I did think later, too, that what a great conceit it was of his to, 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 hum, to sort of take the Spawn movie ranch which was an old broken-down ranch that the Manson family lived at but used to be used for old westerns and old TV westerns too, that they would, he would use that seriously as, a, as kind of a theme of westerns. Like, like It's almost as if Manson really still thought he was in a western. I mean, right. it didn't say that. It sort of ties to what, to what DiCaprio's character did. Right, and it's also, yeah, yeah. It's also like... It's almost, not just as a device, but you mean as sort of like an allegory? Or well, a, no, a, not really. Just as a starting off point. And how, well, let's, what's, what am I going to do for my next movie? Well, what if you, the Spawn Ranch really was a western or something? Right, right, right. Or right. another way of putting it is, well, you know that the westerns are over, when the guy that's living on the Spun Ranch is now Charlie Manson. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the end of it for yeah. Westerns. Yeah. And so, um, and, you know, and the one... I didn't even make that connection until you just said it right now because Pitt goes there and he says, oh, wait, I used to work here. Yeah. Then, of course, DiCaprio worked there, too. Oh, he did? Well, well I mean, Oh, it, no, it, in it, his way. Yeah, in that show. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. like, it, it's just that Charlie has... I mean, <laughs> the whole thing is the hippies are taking over, um, you know, uh, society and stuff, but they're they're definitely... Take they literally took over the place he used to work. You know he had to, yeah. he has to go to Italy for work now. So I know. Yeah. I I think that it's um and you know there was nothing Western about you know they were just had a free place to live right. But uh, and I visited the Spawn Ranch and it looked exactly like that. I mean it was not to get too technical on yeah. it, but do you feel like Tarantino got the vibe of those people and what was going on there? Well, pretty- he didn't get the vibe of the ranch because the ranch when I went there. 
And I think when most people went there, it was a very friendly place. These young women were very friendly to you and all the stuff, and so were the men. And so, uh, I mean, it was desolate. But but they were friendly to Brad Pitt until he realized well, that, that they were taking except advantage. Except the way, way it's pictured in the movie, you know what's happened. You know right, about Manson. Right, right. And the music and everything makes a very tense scene, even from the, almost the moment he, that Brad Pitt enters that area. You know, they have every, they're very suspicious of him. Who's this outsider? Wouldn't you say the same thing about... Uh, so you're saying that that, that vibe is not, is not the vibe that you got... Because you went there after the murders happened, so it must have been yeah, but a we strange vibe. Yeah, but, but we didn't. We were pretty naive when we went there. Yeah, I think that. Uh, yeah, they were. They were all criminals, really. Yeah, but you. But they didn't appear that way when you first went there. They just seemed like they were innocent. And then, you know, the film you you only see Charlie Manson in passing, well, which surprised me too. Yeah. Well, I, I think Spoiler again, he just again. he used all these different elements of the time to make a fairy tale. Just what the title says, it was a fairy tale based yeah. on elements, and, and all the elements were accurate. Just the history wasn't completely accurate. But, I mean, I, I think the Spawn Ranch looked a lot like it, and there was a lot that was accurate about it. But what, but since we know the history that Manson lived there, yeah, uh, you, you, you then are able to make that a kind of a terrifying scene, whereas normally at that time you wouldn't have known that. That's all I'm saying. But I don't think – in other words, it's not a historical picture – other than that, they did capture all the elements of that time. So, did you see? Did you have a feeling that the end was not going to be, you know, the act what actually happened? That he was going to do this, and he's no, done I, it before, like in *Inglorious Bastards*. But did you have any? Or did, were you watching with like, oh yeah, poor Tate, she's going to end up dead by the end of well, this? Well, they the fact that they feature Sharon Tate almost at the beginning of the movie and then cut back to her and everything, you figure that's yeah, it's going to end up with her being killed, and I think that. And I no, I was a complete surprise to me when they huh. that car pulled up and they were talking. I the one thing I thought was a little bit strained in the movie was them the, the Manson girl the Manson people arguing about. Well, we're gonna. They realized that this Western guy lived next door, and yeah, they said yeah. we're gonna we're gonna these, kill him. We're yeah. gonna kill the people that taught us to kill, and that was their justification. But they were on acid when they were saying this, and they were all thinking, "Well, far out, man," and all this stuff. But. But I still thought that they were was going to end up with this brutal scene, uh, killing Sharon Tate. So yeah, I was completely taken by surprise. Yeah, I, it's funny because that, that scene in the car, which was obviously, I, I don't think that was taken from any real quotes. Yeah. Even though some of those people are still in jail, right? They're not actually. They actually weren't torched in Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio's swimming pool. But I thought that was a, to me. I thought that was Tarantino's kind of jab at the woke new generation. Of, you know about like. Oh well, you know, you know, it's just kind of like what's happening now with, with fucking Trump blaming the yeah. uh, the the recent murders right, on video right. games. He's yeah. like, no, this is entertainment. Fuck you. Like, no, I no, thought that I, was a bit of a fuck you to people who who want to try to blame uh, pop culture for other ills. Right. You know? But when I saw the movie again today, even before that scene, I did think, you know, Trump's full of shit about the video games. But maybe Westerns did make. <laughs> You know, maybe it's West. We could, or he, he could easily argue it's Westerns that cause well, us to become a gun nation. I think an argument can be made, and someone can study it. But I, I think the point of view of Tarantino, and I could be wrong, but it seems to me that because they were going to kill somebody, and so they're in the car, like, "Hey, why don't we kill the people who taught us to kill?" Yeah. Like, I think the idea is like, no, they're fucked up people. They're they're led by a psychopath. They're on drugs. And they want to kill somebody, and they're looking. I think that was the idea of like let's let's ad hoc 
come up with a rationalization for for this horrible act that, that we want to do just because we're you know like in other words like they're, they're trying to find in the same way Trump is doing it now they're trying to um, find some reason to blame their own in insufficiencies and their own deviant you know their own deviant uh, you know wishes which obviously they 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 fulfill their Manson have them fulfill but but what I was going to say is, so I have this theory about the ending tell me if I'm nuts um, that that if you think about the very last scene, so after the violence and, and you know, says, hey, should I come to the hospital? And Pitt's like, no, it's okay. And like the shallowness of DiCaprio's character, you have empathy for him, but you also realize he's a really shallow guy. And he's like, okay. And then he, he's talking to the, you know, um, Polanski's friend, who's a real person, right, um, at the gates. And uh, it's an aerial shot. It's like a drone shot. He's talking to him, and they're talking about what happened. Oh, you guys okay? And then he's he's talking to him at the gate, and then he's talking to Sharon Tate on the speaker. Yeah. That um the the friend I can't remember that guy's name. Jay Sebring. Jay Sebring, who's a real person, right? Was he like a, a person of note at the yeah, time? Yeah, yeah, a hairdresser. He was a hairdresser. So he's, so the hairdresser, Jay Sebring, is what is it? Saint Peter at the gate of heaven, and then. Sharon Tate is God or goddess, the voice, and he's it's aerial shot. He's at, so my my whole thing is that the subtext is that this is all a fantasy in his mind. He probably actually got killed in the pool with his headphones on, and um, but he's he, he's dead. Sharon Tate said he's being let into heaven, and heaven for him is is being with the A list people. <laughs> you know that's that's heaven for people from Hollywood. Boy, you have a you know. good imagination for an atheist. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm sure. Well, it's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's my religious wish for fulfillment. For I, I didn't think of it that way, but I do think that it had the same effect. Yeah, I mean, I think that when he finally is invited in by Sharon Tate to meet her friends, that he is suddenly so... He's rem- like, I've arrived, you know? Well, he's arrived. He is part of Hollywood. You know, he's, at least he's gotten over the momentary depression that he right. had. But, uh, but no, no, I think it was... That's one of the really sweet things about the movie. I mean, I think that it, that's the happy ending. He finally is accepted. People saw... You know, J.C. Uh, Brink says, oh, you were in that... Oh, because they're talking about the flamethrower and all yeah, that yeah. stuff. You know? He's like, oh, you were in that movie with the fire. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, right, yeah. That's right, that's right. And he, he just... But the fact that he even knew his name... Was yeah, such yeah. a big thing, and so, and I, I totally understand how so many actors must feel that way every day, you know, and uh, and it's not because they're so ambitious or like that. I, I mean, they just it's just it's their identity. Well, you're playing in Hollywood. You're playing in a sort of like lost a slot machine. I mean, you know, yeah. and some people make it really big, and some people are big for a while, and then they're not. And right, right and right. if you tie your identity to that, which is hard not to, I think, yeah. Um, it's very up and down. So it, it was, it was, um, and you know, he did kill the bad guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like so the, in a way, it's him, like him, saying, him and, and Pitt actually were heroes. Right. So yeah. if movies were real and li- life wasn't, right, this is right. the way it would be. So that's what a fairy tale is. Yeah, you know? yeah. Exactly. So that's what's, I think that's really, it's like movies coming to life. And if you love movies, you love this movie because it's, you know, I just thought it was so up, uh, so uh, rich and uplifting. It had so many, Really, it's a fairy tale. I mean, the, the scene between, um, uh, not Brad Pitt, but um, the other Leonardo, guy, Leonardo, and the little girl. Yeah, yeah. Uh, everyone talks about that scene. Well, I mean, yeah. one of the things about I saw the scene it the second time. I just studied it, and then they go. He has that scene, 
Then he has a scene where he doesn't do, he flubs his lines, and then he, ha, then he has a meltdown in his own trailer. And he goes back to do the final scene with the little girl, which he takes hostage, and he does it really well. And the director comes up to him and says, you know, that was like Shakespeare, and yeah, you, know, yeah. you really did that. And he says, thank you. And he, he says, and then the little girl says, that's the, most, the best acting yeah, I've yeah. ever seen. And he says, thank you. And then he turns, and his eyes actually fill up yeah, with yeah, tears. Yeah, yeah. And then those tears turn to absolute anguish like he just got out alive. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. what a great actor. It, it, it was a great, and look, as, as the son of an actor, you knew, you knew my dad a little bit. I'll, I'll, I'll end on a little anecdotal story that's not quite the same as Leonardo and that girl. But when my dad would do like summer stock, somewhere in Westchester or something. And I was staying up there and I would just come and watch the rehearsals. So as a kid, I was like six or seven. You see the rehearsals go over and over, right? And kids, you know, not anymore, but I used to have a pretty spongy mind and I would just remember stuff. And my dad was doing a rehearsal, like three or four days of rehearsal. And on the fourth day, my dad was doing the rehearsal and he, he couldn't remember line. And he went line and the assistant director, and I called out the line. <laughs> And everybody, the assistant director and the director and the crew, like, cracked. My dad laughed. And then later that evening, he said, Barney, never do that again. (laughs) So, and, like, I should have done what the little girl said and said, Dad, you're the best actor ever. Um, All right. um, David, thank you again. Sure. This is real goodbye, unless there's a third movie about Charles Manson that oh, comes out. probably going to be a few. We'll just do a whole podcast about movies about Charles Manson. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, sure. For listening, everybody, Mr. Movie Club is out. Baby, baby, baby. That's it. Finally, it's done. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. David's a great guy. He's family, so I'm biased, but um, he's really just an awesome dude. Knowledgeable, funny, and uh, full of stories. Um, Thanks for listening. This is Barney Barn Barn. Um, feel free to email me if you have any comments. Barney Barn Barn at Gmail. I'll say it again. Barney Barn Barn at Gmail. Um, leave a comment on our Facebook page. Leave a comment on iTunes. Everything helps. Um, and stay tuned for episode five coming up in September. Thanks, everybody. Good night. <laughs>